what are we, five or six weeks now into coronavirus and quarantine and a few weeks into stay at home. You're beginning to hear in conversations, memes online, Facebook and Twitter feeds, even on the news, interviews with news anchors, a longing for a life that is beyond the life we are currently living. A life where there is plenty of toilet paper and a life where there is professional haircuts to be had again. A life where we're not in isolation, but rather we are in community with others in a way that that community causes our flourishing and we cause the flourishing of others. We long to be in a life where the thorns and the thistles of the curse are not making our work hard. We long for a government that is not dysfunctional. And all of these things, the present catastrophe has not only exposed perhaps some of our misplaced hopes, but has shown in our hearts echoes of very real deep hopes that I want to argue God has put in each one of us for something not just in this world, but beyond this world of community and of right and just government and of laboring and serving in a way where we are no longer hindered by death and disease and sin. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished just that. That He has brought about a new creation that will one day be consummated, but has even today been inaugurated in the lives of those who turn and trust in Christ. That we have a hope that reaches beyond this world and beyond this virus and beyond these circumstances. That we have a hope that extends even beyond better days in this life toward the best possible days at the return of our Lord Jesus. All of that was inaugurated in the death and the resurrection of Christ, what J.R.R. Tolkien referred to as a eucatastrophe. He combined that word Eucharist, thanksgiving joy, with catastrophe. That the death and the resurrection of Christ was a happy catastrophe because it was bringing to an end the present world order and was inaugurating a new order in which joy and peace and righteousness reign. But all of this would not come about. It would not be possible. There would be no experience of it in this life. There would be no consummation of it as at his return had Christ not bodily risen from the dead. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we, speaking of Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised, he writes. What I want to do this morning is spend 
a brief amount of time, as brief as I possibly can, giving essentially what the whole Bible would have to say, that we can't touch every part of it, giving a whole Bible theology of the resurrection, specifically of Christ's resurrection. And what I want to do is I want to begin, first of all, with biblical foundations. Normally, I, we preach through particular books of the Bible. We'll have a particular passage that we're looking at. We go verse by verse. Today, we're going to be in a number of different places, and I want to start with biblical foundations. And then I want, on the basis of those foundations, to begin drawing and tracing out practical and theological implications. How does it reach from God's Word, the Bible, into our own lives in such a way to give us hope and change us and transform us? I want to consider these two things this morning. This is what I might call a fire hydrant sermon. Some of you in the hot summer days, you've seen videos or perhaps you remember growing up playing in this way where you turn on a fire hydrant and all of it sprays and it's an inexhaustible amount of water. And even if you're in it, there's no way you can be touched by all of it. That may be what this sermon is like. There's going to be a lot coming at you. And you may not necessarily be hit by all of it in this sitting, but to be hit by any of it is to be blessed. And there's no way that what comes out in the next 40 or 50 minutes can exhaust what we see in God's Word. It is an inexhaustible supply of truth. And so we are just scratching the surface. And so I pray in whatever, whatever sticks to you, that it would be an encouragement and an edification to you, building you up and encouraging you as we look at what the whole Bible has to say concerning the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with some biblical foundations. Right before the risen Jesus ascended to heaven, he appeared before his troubled disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after enjoying a fish dinner with him, you may remember that he said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. That is during my earthly ministry, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then Luke says, Luke 24, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that is the Old Testament. And he says, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. You say, wait a minute, where in the Old Testament is it written that Christ specifically should rise from the dead? And where does it ever talk about him rising in the, from the dead in three days nonetheless? Clearly, Jesus and his apostles who follow after him believe that the Old Testament had much to say regarding not only the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ. But, but where do they see it? There's a number of places in the Old Testament that we could go, but I want this morning to offer three. Three of particular significance. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53 and Jonah 1. If you're able to hang in, flip to those as you're able. That's great. If not, just hear the word of God read and preach. I pray you're blessed by it. Psalm 16, we'll consider this one first. A number of psalms are sung by the congregation in Israel as an expression of their trust in the Lord to care for them, not only in this life, but also into the next. And Psalm 16 is one such psalm. Written by King David himself, the last four verses especially aim to focus Israel's attention on the joy of being in God's presence after death. 
David writes this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is in my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David wrote this psalm and Israel sang this psalm as an expression of their hope for the future. But the Holy Spirit wrote this psalm by David's hand to predict the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's Holy One, as we see here, is one that is without peer. And the Spirit teaches us through the preaching of the apostles, Peter in Acts chapter 2 and the apostle Paul in Acts 13, right after speaking about Christ's crucifixion, both of them affirmed that Jesus' resurrection was predicted by the Old Testament. And for proof, they point to Acts, or rather Psalm 16, these words that were written by David. And in so doing, they argued that the Holy One that, da that David is talking about in Psalm 16 couldn't possibly be David himself because David died and he was buried and his tomb is still around to this day. No, David couldn't be writing about himself. In fact, Peter was writing as, or rather David was writing as God's prophet. He was writing about a later and a greater Davidic king that was yet to come. And this is what Peter preached in Acts chapter two. He said, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on a throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he wasn't abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. The only true reading of the Old Testament is a Christian reading of the Old Testament. And the apostles give us a pattern for just that. It is to look back at the Old Testament through the lenses of Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished. And so when you go again to Psalm 16, you should see first and foremost that the Holy Spirit has inspired that psalm to speak about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the only place in the Old Testament we find a prediction of the resurrection. Even more detail is given in Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to your right to Isaiah chapter 53, right in the middle of your Bible, Isaiah 53. Many of us are familiar with Isaiah's song. He has four of them, beginning in Isaiah 40 all the way through 53. Four songs of a servant, and this is his final song. And we're familiar with Isaiah 53, especially on Good Friday, because it describes the vicarious death of Christ. But what often goes unnoticed in Isaiah 53 is how the song also predicts the resurrection of Christ. I just want you to listen to this, Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief and when his soul made an offering for guilt, oh, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Did you catch that phrase? He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That expression, to prolong one's days, is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 
And in every single instance, they refer to someone's earthly life being extended. But not so in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, this is the only place in the Old Testament where this phrase is used to refer to somebody who's died. And after bearing the iniquities of his people, this servant, we see here in verse 10, will be raised from the dead where he will see his offspring. And according to verse 12, a couple of verses later, he will enjoy the spoils of victory. Who is this suffering servant who dies and is raised to life? It's Jesus. And who are his offspring? It's us, his church. We are the spoils of his victory over sin and death in raising from the dead. You say, okay, okay, wait a minute. Okay, so I see it. The Old Testament definitely predicts. I see it in Psalm 16. I see it in Isaiah 53. The Old Testament definitely predicts that Jesus would rise from the dead. Well, what about this whole three days thing? Jesus said, and so does the Apostle Paul, say that it was written in the scriptures that Jesus would not only raise from the dead, but he would do so in three days. Where do we find that? Well, in Jonah chapter 1, after God commissioned Jonah to preach to the wicked city of Nineveh. Jonah took off running in the opposite direction and God dealt with Jonah in a special way. Jonah 1 verse 17 reads, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If you don't believe that the Bible both the Old and the New Testament is a unified whole, then the story of Jonah and the fish might seem a bit random, if not utterly sensational. But Jesus understood it to be an historical fact, and he would later draw a parallel between Jonah's adventure and his own saving work in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. There he teaches, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. So here's the whole purpose of Jonah and the fish. Here's the whole reason that God brought about this adventure in the life of Jonah for this purpose, that he would be a sign. A sign of what? Jesus goes on to explain. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah appeared to die and then to live again when he was swallowed and spit up by the fish. Jesus teaches that Jonah's experience merely anticipated his own death and his own resurrection. And so just like with Psalm 16, and just like with Isaiah 53, Jonah needs to be understood through the lens of Jesus. And there we see that the prophet's experience anticipated something greater. That it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Well, as you can imagine, when we get to the New Testament, this reality is right at the heart of Jesus' teaching and earthly ministry. In all four Gospels, Jesus predicts his resurrection from the dead. Furthermore, all four Gospels unite in including the bodily resurrection of Jesus at the end of their respective 
versions of a story, and all of them include him appearing first to women. But the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, goes beyond these other three by adding a couple of additional details about his resurrection, as well as providing some theological interpretation more so than the others. If you're in the Gospel of John, we find one such example in John chapter 11. Jesus' good friend Lazarus has died. You may remember that both Mary and Martha, those are Lazarus' sisters, well, they confront Jesus with the exact same statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Little do they know that Jesus deliberately waited for his friend Lazarus to die so that he might perform a sign that would display God's glory and encourage his disciples. And so Jesus tells the distraught Martha that her brother would rise again. And Martha responded like any good Jew of the day would. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know that he's going to rise again. I know that he'll rise in the resurrection of the last day. That was good Jewish theology. But Jesus' reply to Martha is shocking. He says, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus not only identifies himself with that great future event of God, but essentially tells Martha that in him, that future day has invaded the present. He is the eternal life. One of the glorious themes in John's gospel, if you were to read it from beginning to end, and if you have about an hour or so, I can't think of a better way to spend a quiet afternoon on Easter at home than to read John's gospel. And if you do, you'll find that one of the glorious themes in John's gospel is that Jesus is a life giver, both as a creator and as redeemer. We see it all over John's gospel. And this theme forms the background for his words to Martha when he says his famous I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who loves and believes in me shall never die. All right, Jesus, how do we know that what you're saying is true? Well, only a few moments later, by speaking the mere words, just three words, Lazarus, come out. Jesus who is the resurrection and the life, raises Lazarus from the dead. And he did so as a sign not only that he is, in fact, the giver of eternal life, but also as a sign of how he would go about accomplishing that very feat. That would be a sign of the even greater sign of his own resurrection from the dead. Just as he raised Lazarus from the dead, so shall he take up his own life, just as he promised in John chapter 10. And this resurrection from the dead, oh, this is an event that we see is not just peripheral to the life and the preaching of the church, but as soon as Jesus ascends to heaven, sends the Spirit, boom, the apostles are off and running, and the resurrection is right at the heart of their message. In Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, Peter preached over and over and over again that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen saw the risen and glorified Jesus, and he prayed aloud, Lord Jesus, a prayer to one who can only be alive, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. In Acts chapter 8, Saul is confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and he's radically converted. But the reality of the risen Christ would not only impact his biography, it would also impact his very theology. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 17 as Luke records, and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And Paul's message is the same message as Peter, that there is no name under heaven by which men may be saved, that is Jesus. Beloved, we need to pause as a church and we've got to ask ourselves whether the resurrection enjoys the same privileged status in our preaching and in our evangelism. Do we proclaim the good news of Jesus' empty tomb every bit as much as we proclaim the good news of his bloody cross? Because it's at the very heart of the gospel. Oh, friends, this is no side dish to Christianity. It's not optional. It's not a la carte. As we will see the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and believers being raised with him to new life is the central reality of the rest of the New Testament. Just follow along with me. Fire hydrant. In the book of Romans, we learn that Jesus Christ, quote, was raised for our justification and that sinners are saved by, quote, confessing with their mouths Jesus is Lord and believing with their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Quite simply, if you say that you love Jesus, but you don't believe that God raised him bodily from the dead, you are not a Christian and you are still dead in your sins. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that the resurrection is essential to Christianity. And that, quote, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, oh, we are of all pity, all people most to be pitied. Paul goes on to explain that if Jesus didn't physically raise from the dead, then our preaching and dying, he says, would be a total waste, as would be the faith of all of our hearers. That all of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we would not be forgiven at all. In fact, we would still be in our sin and we would be destined for hell. But Paul writes in the very next verse, in fact, Christ has been raised. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That image of the first fruits means that there is more to come. Jesus' resurrection is not only the pattern for our future resurrection, but it is the cause of our being raised to eternal life. Not only in 1 Corinthians, but also in Ephesians. Oh, we learn that apart from Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that because of God's great love for us, he made us alive together with Christ and he raised us up together with him. We were spiritually dead, but now in Christ, we are alive. One of the apostles' favorite ways of describing our relationship to Christ is in terms of our union with him. That in his great grace, God joined us to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, such that wherever Christ is, there we are positionally. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That is not a future reality. That is a present reality. That is spiritually and positionally speaking what is true of us now. That God has joined us with Christ in his death 
and in his resurrection, and he gives us eternal life in the here, in the now. That's Ephesians. But he keeps going. Colossians, the New Testament, keeps on rolling. In Colossians, we learn of the risen Christ's power to save. Not only is he preeminent over creation, but he's also preeminent over his new creation. That is the church. And he is preeminent over the church, as Paul says, quote, the beginning the firstborn of the dead, that Jesus' powerful resurrection enables him to be the Lord over the church, to rule as its head, and to give life to its members. Oh, in the epistle to the Hebrews, we learn that Jesus Christ is the superior high priest to the Old Testament priests. And that's because he's a priest of an altogether different order, not a priest in the order of Levi, but of Melchizedek. Therefore, he became, quote, a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is therefore able to save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. Oh, his sacrifice as high priest is perpetually present in the presence of God because he is now and always will be alive after dying for our sins. He also Psalm 16, Isaiah 53. But it isn't just in, in Hebrews. 1 Peter likewise opens with this praise to God. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And how does God cause us to be born again to a living hope? How does he regenerate us by his grace? Well, obviously, he does so through the power of his spirit, but Peter goes on to tell us that he does it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection supplies the power for new life and living hope. It is the source of the eternal life that the Holy Spirit applies to all those who believe according to the Father's plan. That's 1 Peter. And then finally in Revelation... We see that Jesus is described as the first and the last. And he's described as the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, because he is, quote, the living one. The one who has died and who, quote, is alive forevermore. Therefore, he possesses the keys to death in Hades. In other words, Jesus Christ, as the crucified and risen Messiah, the amen to all of God's promises. He is humankind's savior and our judge. Oh, friend, listen, if you are tuning in this morning and you are not a Christian, consider what God is offering to you in Christ. And consider what may come of you if you reject that offer that you can have all of your sins forgiven today. That Jesus Christ lived every moment of his life in perfect submission to the Father to the point of dying on a cross for the forgiveness of sins for all of those who would turn from their own sin and trust in him. Oh, but not only that, three days later, as we've seen, Jesus was raised from the dead just as Scripture predicted, not only as a declaration that the Father has accepted his death in your place, 
Should you repent of your sins and believe in him, it also is a, is a guarantee that you too can have eternal life in Christ instead of eternity in hell apart from Christ. Oh, friend, I pose to you this morning that the same question that Jesus posed to Mary on that fateful day when he raised Lazarus from the dead, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Will you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord and that his lordship over all things has been declared and vindicated in that God has raised him from the dead. Do you believe that? Because if you believe in him and you love him, though you may die any day from a car wreck, cancer, or coronavirus, you will never die. Eternal life is yours. And yet consider what awaits you if you don't. Sure condemnation and hell under the wrath of God for eternity. Oh, friend, believe in Christ today. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Trust in Christ. But for those of us who have been brought by God's grace to confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, I want to trace out four implications. Four implications, and I'm going to, in those implications, trace out some practical applications if you're following along with the outline that we provided this week, I've just condensed the last two sections into one section for the sake of time. So much more than we could say than what I'm able to say this morning. But I want to consider four implications of everything that we've just looked at in both the Old and the New Testament. Number one, that through his resurrection, Christ inaugurated the new creation. That through his resurrection, he accomplished our justification. That through his resurrection, he sources our sanctification. And fourthly and finally, through his resurrection from the dead, he guarantees our glorification. Follow along with me through each one of these, beginning with the first. That through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ has inaugurated the new creation. Christ's resurrection was a declaration it was a declaration from the Father concerning the vindication of His Son. And that greatest declaration in human history brought about the greatest event since the creation of the world. That is the inauguration of a new creation. That is what is meant by Christ being called the first fruits, as we saw, or elsewhere, the firstborn from the dead. That in Jesus' death and resurrection, that old order of sin and death was undone. And one single human, Jesus Christ, the righteous, now stood, body and soul, completely beyond the reach of the curse. And the same will be true of every single saint for all ages who would trust in Christ. This reality is not unlike the words of G.K. Chesterton, who wrote this, that on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place 
found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had died that night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and an assemblance of the gardener. God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. I love that phrase. The world died that night. For Christ on that Sunday in raising from the dead doomed the old world order in rebellion against God and all of its systems and structures. The threat of death was gone. There is no danger of the serpent wrecking it all. Death has been swallowed up in victory and the serpent's head has been crushed. And so while the total transformation of the cosmos and the final destruction of sin is yet to come, even now in the present day, the transformed lives of believers in Christ's church testify to the inevitability of that day. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That in his resurrection from the dead, Christ has inaugurated a new creation. And we see three spiritual realities that are attached to that new creation, three new creation realities, that he has accomplished our justification, he sources our sanctification, and he guarantees our glorification. So not only did Christ's resurrection inaugurate the new creation, but in that context, it also secondly accomplished our justification. That when Adam was found to be a sinner and he was declared worthy of death, all of humanity shared his fate. Sin and death spread to all men because all men had sinned. But when Christ was found righteous and he was declared worthy of life by the Father, he was, quote, raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. In him, we are not only given new life, but we become the righteousness of God. This is so much deeper so much richer, so much more nourishing than that old adage about justification being just if I'd never sinned. Yes, our sins are forgiven in Christ, but the good news of the gospel is about so much more than the mere forgiveness of sins. As if, as if Jesus is somehow far off from me and, and he, he and us, we make a long distance exchange as if, as if I send him my sin and then he shoots me his righteousness. Oh, that is not the image that we find in the New Testament at all. No, John Calvin rightly summarizes the teaching of the New Testament this way. We do not therefore contemplate Christ outside of ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness may be imputed, that is credited to us but because we put on Christ and we are engrafted into his body. In short, because he deigns to make us one with him. To be a Christian is not only to say my sins have been forgiven, though that's true. It is to say I belong to Christ. I have been clothed in him. 
Jesus didn't just send me some of his righteousness or give me some of his righteousness. No, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus is my righteousness. That means that whatever he gained by virtue of his resurrection from the dead is mine. And wherever he is, I'm there too. This is why we who are in Christ can belt out the words of Charles Wesley's hymn, no condemnation now I dread because Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Oh, Jesus is not a far-off Savior, FedExing us righteousness when we give him our sin. Jesus takes us and brings us into himself such that we are one with him. This is why the Apostle Paul compares the mystery of the gospel to marriage, of distinct parties becoming one. That is what Christ has done for his bride, the church. That we have become one with him. We've not merely received righteousness, but that we are in Christ. Christ is our righteousness. And so, Christ's resurrection inaugurates the new creation. It establishes our justification. And thirdly, it sources our sanctification. The reality of our union with Christ that we just talked about not only speaks about how we're justified before God, but it also addresses how it is that you and I are sanctified. That is, how it is that you and I become holy. How do we become more like Christ? Well, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes the story of every single believer into the story of the gospel. He writes that Jesus, in fact, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And that every single believer who by God's grace have been brought to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, have been baptized with Christ in his death and united with him in his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, this means that our progress in holiness doesn't depend ultimately on our efforts. It doesn't depend on that new Bible study. It doesn't depend on new disciplines. It doesn't depend on renewed efforts on Monday morning. Our progress in holiness depends first on a new relationship to Christ. That our union with Christ is not the goal of holiness, as perhaps some out there in, in more mystical traditions would offer, that, that through various disciplines that we might come to experience union with Christ. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. No, the Bible teaches that our union with Christ is not the goal of our holiness, it is the source of our holiness. And so with this in mind, Romans 6, Paul gives us three liberating commands in verses 11, 12, and 13. First, the first command that he says in verse 11 is this, you need to count on it. He writes, you must consider, that is count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In this first command, Paul is simply commanding us to recognize 
what is true of us in Christ. He's not telling us really to do anything. He's not telling us to slay sin. He's not telling us to set up new helpful prudential boundaries. He is saying you need to come back to the heart of the gospel first and foremost. That in Christ, your fundamental identity has been absolutely changed. Your identity is no longer defined by your many sins, but by the righteousness and the obedience of the risen Christ. Oh, believer, do you believe that? That when God thinks of you and calls you by name, he does not call you by sin. Oh, that's, that's Jeff, the irritable and angry one. Oh, that's Jeff, the one who's prone to laziness and fear. Oh, that's Jeff, the one who, who struggles with, with finding confidence and hope in Christ and fearing God more than man. Oh, that's Jeff. He doesn't define us according to our sin. We have a new identity defined in Christ. That is my son with whom I am well pleased. Beloved, do you believe that? That God does not call you by your sin, but by the name of Christ. That you are a son and you are a daughter in Christ with whom he is well pleased. Perhaps you think when you consider this last week or this last month or your present life, what the look on the Father's face must be for you and you think it is one of frustration or consternation or impatience or revulsion. I want to argue for you based on what we see here in Romans 6 that the look of the Father's face upon you because you are clothed in Christ is one of deep pleasure. He is no less pleased with you than he is pleased with his own son and he no less loves you than he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. Because you are in him. Do you believe that? Paul says that's where you start. Verse 11. But having started there, he says, secondly, don't let sin reign. He writes in the very next verse, verse 12, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Just because your old self has been crucified doesn't mean that your battle with sin is over. It means that because you are in Christ, you no longer have to obey sin. You can say no to sin. Sin doesn't have to win anymore in spite of all of its lies and all of its temptations. It is not your master anymore. You are not Jekyll and Hyde with two personalities vying for mastery in your heart. Sin and the Holy Spirit are not like two junkyard dogs fighting against each other, a white dog and a black dog. And depending on which one you feed, that's the one that's going to win. That is not what the Bible teaches. Even though it may feel that way sometimes, listen, sin is not a power equal to the power of Christ. And you have been raised with Christ. So how then do we deal with our remaining sin? Paul writes in verse 13, thirdly, yield to your new master. He says, don't present your members as, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here, Paul envisions a battlefield, and that field is filled with weapons and warlords, and the battlefield is the body. The warriors are the passions and the desires, and the weapons are our members. And those warriors will serve one of two possible warlords. It will serve sin or it will serve God. And so having been raised with Christ to new life and of understanding the reality that we are no longer slaves to sin, we are to yield ourselves to God. That we are to go with faith-filled obedience and trust that what he says about himself and his will for our lives and his word is true. And we are to seek to obey all that he has commanded by his grace. But this is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps message in Romans 6. Listen again how Paul motivates us in verse 13 to do this. As those who have been brought from death to life. Not those who will be brought to life if you do especially well. But you yield yourselves to God as those who have new life in Christ. He's saying each one of us have been essentially undragoned by God's grace. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you'll recall that there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub. C.S. Lewis says, and he almost deserved it. Eustace was a selfish and greedy boy. And Lewis writes, quote, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. If you've seen the movie, put all that out of your mind. It was butchered. Go to the book. In time, Eustace, even though he had everything his heart desired, grew more miserable until one night when he met Aslan. And he transformed him from a dragon to a boy. Aslan undragoned Eustace, and it wasn't quick, and it was certainly painful. He had to be unscaled. But I love how Lewis describes the undragoned Eustace because it describes the Christian life so well. He writes, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days where he could be very tiresome. But, and listen to this, the cure had begun. If you have been united to Christ, you have been raised to new life and sin no longer has any power or mastery over you. And there are times where you feel that that may not be true because you know that you are not now what you want, want to be and one day will be. But if you are in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, being united to him, both in his death and in his resurrection, you have begun to be a different person. And though you may have relapses, the cure 
has begun. Christ's resurrection sources our sanctification. But it also finally guarantees our glorification. The Bible presents believers as pilgrims passing through this world to their heavenly home. We live in this world, but we belong to Christ. And we are seated where he is. And while we eagerly await the physical resurrection of our own frail and broken bodies, we can be confident that we have already been raised with Christ. So when the Bible talks about Christ's resurrection as, quote, a first fruits of our future physical resurrection, it's not saying that these are two separate events. It's saying that Christ's resurrection is the beginning of one single event that includes all of our resurrections. He is, his being raised from the dead is not only what causes our resurrection, but it is the guarantee that God will bring our salvation to completion on that last day because that work has already begun. And Christ's resurrection is the guarantee. It is the vouchsafe, the down payment of your future resurrection and glorified state. I love the old hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. It says this, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given the down payment. That's Christ in his resurrection. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified saints in heaven. The saints in heaven who are yet now fully with Christ may be more happy, but they are not more secure. For we have all been raised with Christ, and we have been seated with him in the heavenly places. Therefore, we conclude with Paul when he writes, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm thus in the Lord. That day is coming and we will get there. It's guaranteed.